What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Emil Sandstead. He is the author of the book, Money Dethroned, A Historical Journey, and he also writes about monetary history at his blog, bdratings.org. With all the craziness going on in monetary policy around the world today, uh, I thought it would just be interesting to connect with Emil, um, look back on some previous periods in different uh, parts of the world where you know, irresponsible monetary policy dominated and some of the outcomes and effects that it had in those places and times. Uh, And then get, of course, him to reflect on some of the craziness that's happening today and uh, what he thinks will will come of all this. So yeah, just a really enjoyable chat, super timely, and uh, hope you like it too. Thanks for coming on the the show today. uh, I've been eagerly awaiting this conversation. For one, just because, you know, I, I think we share a, a mutual interest in monetary history and economics and that kind of stuff. Uh, and two, of course, what's going on uh, around the world today. So uh, yeah, I've been jonesing for a Bitcoin discussion and, and this one in particular. So, uh, but before we get going, I mean, just for people that maybe aren't familiar with you and haven't uh, consulted your work or your writings before, why don't you give a brief intro? Sure thing. Uh, I uh, have a background in finance. I was uh, working five years in a Swedish bank here in Stockholm. Quit that work uh, after finding out about Bitcoin, I think it was in 2016, something like this. And I just went down the rabbit hole from there. Started started reading Andreas Antonopoulos, watching those kind of uh, YouTube videos. You know, after after some years reading Saifedina Moses' book, The Bitcoin Standard. So I I guess I went the regular way. yeah, so I, be- I became very, very interested in the monetary history about money, or rather the dynamics of money, and uh, just continued on this, on this kind of uh, road ever since. And actually, the, f- the first time I listened to your podcast, Rapid Fire, it was uh, on an airport, um, listening to you and Eric Voskuil talking for, I think, almost three hours. It was a really <laughs> long one. So that was, that was the first ever uh, rapid fire podcast i listen to and it feels a bit weird to be on the same on the same podcast now so i'm, I'm very honored for you to invite me <laughs> well i'm honored to have you man thank you very much um so i think the, the place i want to start and of course you know we can take this uh, anywhere we want to but one of the things that i'm i'm constantly astounded by and uh, you know i'm sure you are as well is when you look back through monetary history you see so many of the same mistakes being committed time and time again in very kind of eerily similar ways and the mm-hmm. outcomes are the same time and time again and it begs the question why aren't we learning from from our mistakes as a, as a civilization because we find ourselves in a very similar position today with what's going on um you know with the economy and with uh, monetary policy <clears throat> and so um, you know, I wanted to get your take on, first of all, what, you know, just your general take on what's going on today, you know, the approach of central banks and stuff like that. And uh, then which episode in history do you think parallels most closely with what we're seeing today? Mm-hmm. You know, for, for one, I think that today's situation is more complicated than it was historically. Historically, uh, even in these uh, early paper money experiments, for example, in France, we have a couple of them that went to hell after some, some years. It was uh, less complicated because the state mass printed money and it quickly resulted in high inflation. Uh, prices skyrocketed, the, the state issued certain laws demanding that prices be kept under certain limits. And this, of course, leads to economic disaster in the end when the producers cannot afford to, uh, to produce stuff. Um, so I think the situation today are more complicated, has to do with this uh, bloated economic system that we have, or the bloated monetary system. They print money en masse right now, but it does not come out to the pockets of uh, regular people immediately. <clears throat> I think it may take some while. It can even take up to a decade. You know. That's why we have seen 
uh, some Bitcoiners uh, discussing this, and they have even pointed to the fact that we might even see some deflation before, before there is price increases. So I don't think there is any good historical uh, example for today's kind of what's going on today. But in the end game, of course, if you, if you continue to print a lot of money digitally or, or, or on paper, it results in the same effect because eventually it has to trickle down to real people, real pockets and real prices. So it's, it's a bit dangerous what's going on today. I focused my research on, uh, on the early periods, the, the primitive monies, the metallic monies, and just the early, the early paper money experiments. So I don't consider myself an expert what's going on today, but I am, I, I am very skeptical about it. And I think everyone should be skeptical. Uh, yeah. One of the, I was reading your piece on uh, John Law and the Mississippi um, story. And, you know, again, that, that, that conjured up many, uh, you know, thoughts. Of, of course, there's differences. Things are more complex today. But, uh, you know, I, I'll just read a quote just to, that from your article that, you know, speaks to some of the similarities. And so, um, you know, here you just said, by the end of 1795, when the assignats were worth virtually nothing, a vast majority of them were in the hands of poor Frenchmen, while the rich and politically connected had already parked wealth in assets that obviously did not experience the same depreciation. You know, and that's such a, a, a similar dynamic to what we have today, because, you know, the people with wealth are able to park them in, you know, pick your asset class, you know, that's re more resistant to uh, inflation and debasement. And then the people that are, you know, basically living paycheck to paycheck are the ones that see the purchasing power diminished with every passing day and who experience <clears throat> the pain of that. Mm, that's exactly right. And uh, when these monetary disasters continue or when, when they start to implode, what's happening then is uh, the state in clumsy attempts always try to remedy the situation. They edict certain harsh laws uh, and they, the, the laws will become ever harsher. And it's always the politically connected that can, that can exchange their worthless paper for the, the, the little amount of silver or gold that is still left in the vault. So it has always been good to be politically connected like that. And I guess it's a little bit the same today, and maybe not as extreme as in the Asignat experiment, of course, but uh, you can be connected today and you can kind of siphon on the new money quicker than, for example, you or me. Uh, if, if you have uh, money and if you have uh, these connections. Yeah, it's, and again, back to that example. I mean, for one, as you mentioned, things um, in, in that uh, time and in that uh, instance, you know, you saw, as you mentioned, all these laws being conjured up, you know, very authoritarian laws being conjured up in order to try to mitigate the negative effects of, of all this paper currency. So people had, you know, limits on withdrawal and they couldn't buy this and they couldn't use a certain currency under pain of death in some cases. And so all of these crazy authoritarian measures were taken just to try to prop up the, the, the failing system a little bit longer. And I know we're in a different dynamic today, the virus, et cetera, but you know, there's certainly a lot of heavy handed things going on and it's, exactly. hard, it's hard not to draw a parallel between those and in, in a similar attempt to continue to prop things up and keep things functioning with some semblance of normalcy and what happened at that period, in that period. There's for sure similarities. I, I thought the same actually with the, with the, the lockdowns, for example, there's prestige involved to be correct in this. Um, states might, some states might not want to admit that they chose the wrong path of shutting down everything with the economic effects that this leads to. Um, it's probably the same dynamics, just that it was even worse before, of course. Yon Law, uh, or many of these early paper money experiments, they knew after a while that this did not work. People were starving. In France, they, they mass recruited people to the army in order for these people not to starve. Uh, but despite seeing all this carnage, they did not end the experiment. They continued to print this, uh, this worthless paper that in theory is backed by silver and gold, but in practice, you cannot obtain it. Uh, so yeah, I, I see some parallels to today's coronavirus uh, hysteria as well. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm actually happy that um, it looks optimistic if, uh, if we take on a tangent to this, uh, this coronavirus. It looks optimistic. Countries are opening up a little bit. Just today in my country, Sweden, they, um, we have been very liberal in terms of these <coughs> shutdowns. And they, they opened up even more today by allowing kids to continue to play football, uh, go, go and, and do their stuff as long as they are fewer than 50 people. So it's virtually no shutdowns here at all at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm amazed at the decision making <clears throat> that, um, you know, the cost of, of these shutdowns in, in all areas, economic, health, you know, everything. Uh, that this is this has been the the, the chosen the chosen course, and it's <clears> difficult <throat> for me to um, presume that it's entirely for the reason of preserving life and not you know there's no element of scapegoating you know the pro the problems that had been manifesting and festering in the existing system you know so because now you know we come out of this and of course things are going to be different you know I, things will regain some semblance of normalcy in my opinion but you know, I don't think we're going to go back exactly to the way things were. Um, with all the money that is being printed and put into the economy, who knows what, what effects that's going to have if we have this big inflationary boom or if there's a loss of confidence much sooner, who knows. But, you know, the, the virus will be blamed for a lot of this stuff when, you know, we both know uh, and a lot of people that are interested in Bitcoin know that these problems have been, well, they're, they're, they're fundamental problems to the system, but to the they've been reaching a crescendo for at least you know several months, if not you know several years, and uh, it's just very convenient that um, you know the virus swooped in to give a bit of a carte blanche to those responsible. Yeah, I am personally convinced that the virus is much less dangerous than the money printing or the many of these measures that, that have been taken right now. It would have been uh, otherwise if the virus actually had a really, really high mortality rate, of course, then you can't really say that you know that the, the monetary decisions are worse. But I think, it, I think they are right now. People are getting checks in their pockets from uh, politicians. The, the names of politicians are stamped on the checks. It's just a recipe for disaster. And uh, it puts a lot of moral hazard out there as well. People expect to be rescued the next time. Why should I save? for my family if I'm gonna get bailed out by, by the politicians the next time as well. So there's this moral hazard all the time. You, you push the problem to the future because in the future, it will be someone else's problem when they're trying to get elected, for example. Yep. So, yeah, so I think a lot has been done the wrong way. And it's this small minority of libertarians screaming that this is not good, this, uh, is, uh, this has a bad effect of the long term. But people, people are very focused on the short term. And if you argue these things, they will become emotional very quickly and tell you that, well, do you, don't you want people to, uh, to have money in this crisis? Well, of course, but it is a personal responsibility to save money for yourself also. We cannot, we cannot outsource this responsibility for the state. We cannot become uh, a world of uh, you know, nanny states where, where they are expected to solve every single problem. And then if, if uh, people actually did save, and there's still people that did not have the proper, um, the proper preparations, when any kind of crisis hits, it's always possible to help, if, if I have money, that we try to help our neighbors and, and our friends. But we, don't, we shouldn't rely on a, on a strong state in this regard. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, the... The nanny state mentality in many places around the world was already extremely prevalent. You know, I come from Canada, you come from Sweden, two countries with big social welfare, you know, components to state activity. And, you know, anytime something emerges, something unexpected, something detrimental, um, people and companies alike, you know, at, you know, fully expect the government to swoop in and, and fix things. And they seem to fail to realize that the government doesn't have, you know, a magic wand and can, can rewrite reality in some special way. All they can do is, you know, basically reallocate resources to try to attempt to cover up problems. But I think we're in an era now where we're, we're you know, the funny thing is, is 
people tend to not believe something is happening to them until it's too late. And, and I want to do, you know, like some of the things you've written about are perfect examples of that. But, you know, I, I think these UBI checks and the things that we're seeing, these stop gaps are just an attempt to slow down the unraveling so that people remain calm for longer so that they don't fully realize what's happening until it's basically too late. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting parallels, again, I hate to keep going back to it, but it was such a, you know, there's so many rich examples from the past, but in the, 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 um, the John Law, you know, episode, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, and it, interestingly, things started to kick off in March of, I can't remember the exact year there, but, you know, things really started to unravel in March. And things happen so quickly once they begin to happen, you know, if the, once confidence begins to get lost in the currency, in the government, in the system, then, you know, things unravel very quickly. And yeah. I think, you know, and we're seeing now, um, you know, the fed, uh, I think not sure the exact dates back in Mar end of March, I believe, you know, they, they made their three most aggressive moves of all time in the span of 10 days, you know? So what, what more could be an alarm bell than behavior like that? But one, most people aren't connected to that. It's not on the mainstream media, so it's not in their faces. Um, and two, like I wonder, you know, I could say this to people in my environment, but until people feel the pain, they most people seem uh, unmotivated to act to protect themselves. Yeah, the thing with this kind of disaster the monetary disasters that i have been writing about a lot they don't occur very often they occur with uh, they can be decades of quite well-functioning countries but then sometimes at some at some time the reality is catching up with you if you have printed too much money uh, you, you cannot escape it by only printing more and more there will always be this catch-up effect by economic reality so the, the way people kind of tend to think about it right now with the, the Fed printing money, etc., they almost think that they, they get resources from somewhere else. But when they print money, the, the, where this purchasing power coming from? It's from our pockets. It can't come from anywhere else. The state is just a, uh, it's a bunch of people working for the state. So there's nothing magical about it, as you indicated. And this is what I think many people fail to realize. It's part of the education system that we, everyone is taught that the state should manage the, the money <clears throat> and during bad times they should spend more so that we get the economy rolling again. But it's again this kind of, it's again that, that people do not realize that when they spend the extra money in, in bad times, for example, if they did not have this purchasing power, that purchasing power would have been in my pocket instead and my family's and everyone else's. So they would, would have been made, able to make those decisions of where to spend their money uh, individually. So, yeah. So people, people treat the state like some kind of magical entity that can, that can solve things, but it's just taking purchasing power from people. This is my point. Yeah. Yeah, the irony, you know, is that people perceive the state that way when in reality, it's the exact opposite. It, it, it misallocates resources. It allocates resources less efficiently, not based on the true needs as dictated by the balance of supply and demand in a given market. So, you know, it's a parasite really on, on prosperity for the most people possible. And uh, it's, it's, we, we live in strange times that people see it as the exact opposite of that. Yeah, um, one interesting effect here is that people in general, they want a small inflation. To, they see a small inflation as the kind of motor that keeps the economy going. But when you, when you start to read some Austrian economics, you quickly realize that all the economic transactions or all economic exchange is between one individual and another individual or companies, for example. So when I have money in my pocket or stored at home, and I choose not to spend it. Um, this is a decision because that's because I did not find the product that I want that I valued more than the money in my pocket or the service. I did not value the service more than the money in my pocket. So when the state ramps up inflation to force me to spend, that is 
in itself misallocation of resources. It's, it's not even the state that misallocates the resources. They're forcing me to buy stuff that I did not want to buy on the margin at that time. And they force me to, for example, invest in projects that I did not deem investable. Because if they would have been investable, I would not have the money in my pocket. I would already have invested. So that they, there's always this, I think you can learn a lot by looking at individual action. Um, why individuals act or why they do not, do not act, instead of trying to create this magical aggregates that the state has to manage um, with ramping up inflation or ramping down inflation. I think it, one thing that Austrian economics has taught me is to always, always start from the individual. And if the individual do not conduct a specific action that the state wants him to, to conduct, there is a reason for that. And it's, not, and it's bad if you're forcing this individual to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of, you know, in very simplistic, but I think truthful ways of putting it that a lot of people don't realize is that all the state can do is either inhibit or compel your action. And presumably, whichever one it chooses, you know, it, it, it can, it's opposed, if it, if it needs to do so, it's opposed to the one that you want to do. So if you want to do a certain action, then the state exists to inhibit that. That's, that's the role in that part. Or if you uh, don't want to do something, um, then the state literally exists to compel you to do so. So it's, uh, I agree that it's, 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 it's important and, uh, you know, uh, to look at things from an individual perspective to see things, see things clearly. But one of the, you know, so I think a lot of people even if they're not into monetary history, even if they don't follow this kind of stuff, most people understand what inflation is. Maybe they don't understand how it works. Maybe they, you know, rely on the CPI rather than the increase in the money supply or, or whatever. But most people know that if things get more expensive, that's bad for me. You know, if my income, whether it be investment or my job, doesn't keep pace with inflation, then I'm worse off. I think a lot of people get that. But what I think... Um, and that's, of course, a result of, of the government's control uh, and issuance of money. But what I don't think a lot of people understand is the, what effect that manipulation, that control uh, has on price signals and what the effect of um, you know, uh, turbulent price signals and erratic price signals have on the economy. And I, so, you know, when we look back at these episodes in history when paper monies have failed, what, what followed the, you know, inflationary period was a tremendous amount of social unrest because of the breakdown of price signals and how, how that impacted the real economy and the ability of people to put food on the table and to, to basically trade with, with other people and buy things. So, you know, can you, for, for people that maybe haven't looked at it from that angle, can you look at it from that angle? Because I know you've written a little bit about it and kind of yeah, uh, sure. elucidate why it's so important to consider not only the theft of inflation, but how mm -hmm. the, the interruption in the, in the price signals has an effect on social uh, behavior. Sure. Yeah. The, the price signal, it is vital for, for in a free market. If, if the price of a good increases, this is like a <clears throat> big red flare in the sky for all the producers of this good to produce more of it. Um, so we see, for example, today in this corona crisis, there are uh, max laws of maximums being put on various medical equipment, these uh, masks or whatever, that the sellers of this equipment, they, they are not allowed to sell above a certain price. So this is an example of where the government are messing with these price signals. If they set if, set, if they set a roof uh, of above, where above the price cannot rise, that is the same as ordering all the producers of this good that don't bother, don't uh, produce more of it because you will not make money. So the price is very, very important in the economy. It tells you where, where to put capital in hands to the task of producing more. And we see a similar effect. Okay, now I spoke about Corona times, but let's take a, a normal year, the interest rate, which is the price of uh, money over time, borrowing money over time, lending. If you mess with this, which the 
the central banks are doing, they control the interest rate. That is the same. It is uh, not letting the natural interest rate show itself to all of us so that the, so that the projects that, are, that, that would be profitable get that the capital they want and that projects that are deemed not profitable would not get the capital that they want. So when the, when the Federal Reserve, for example, are pushing down the interest rate, this just means that machines, you know, tractors and uh, whatever machines that kind of embodies capital, they will end up working on projects that were not economical from the first place. And this means that projects and ventures that would have been profitable, good ventures, they are lacking this uh, real capital. So it's again this misallocation of uh, resources. You cannot, you only have a fixed amount of capital at a given time in the economy. And when you have the state controlling, controlling the interest rate, you make sure that this capital is not allocated to, to the good entrepreneurs. It gets allocated to bad entrepreneurs as well. And it might, might even be worse than this. It might be that even, the, even some of the good entrepreneurs, which has actually good industries to build, they will not get the capital needed. So their, their products are not even finished. You, you saw it in Spain after the last uh, financial crisis. You see these hotels and the building complexes that are half built, kind of. That they are left to, to just stand there because the company went bust in the middle of the process. This is uh, indicative of where the interest rate is uh, pushed down artificially so that there is not enough capital to, to continue those good projects. It is spread out on a wider basis and uh, you end up with you know, this half-baked half, uh, or half-finished investments. So price, price is very important. You should always let prices be free because the economy is complicated. If you don't, if you mess with the prices, it's going to have ripple effects uh, all over the economy. Yeah, this in insane idea that you can micromanage something that's so complex as, you know, even a national economy, but certainly a global economy, uh, where there's trillions of daily calculations and interactions. The, the, the idea that you could ever aggregate enough data and interpret it to make better decisions than the emergent properties of the market itself elucidates is it's just you know it's crazy to me and to your point you know manipulating interest rates like this in addition to um you know messing with the price signal but you know especially on the downward trend that they've been for many 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 years now you know you're just bringing all attempting to artificially bring so much production and consumption forward you know, because you need it for whatever political end or for stability or whatever. And, uh, you know, there seems to be very little consideration of what happens when that gravy train ends, when you can no longer manipulate it. And, you know, look, look at us now. We're in real negative interest rates in most places in the world. And, um, you know, at, at some point it has to stop. And all of that production and consumption that we've effectively stolen from the future by manipulating interest rates lower and pushing that production and consumption forward is probably going to result in very austere times um, in the not too distant future. And so what I'm wondering from you is someone have, who, who studied this stuff, uh, what do you think the, of course, we're both into Bitcoin, and I think we're probably both hoping and expecting that at some point Bitcoin emerges from this as a type of savior on which to rebuild you know, effectively the global economy um, and may, maybe a life raft for those people that, that um, you know, see that uh, during this crisis. But in the, I guess in the short to midterm, how do you see um, this unraveling and what kind of a world do you see manifesting as a result of that unraveling? I, I personally think it's very hard to predict when something is going to happen, how long they can can be kicked down the road, so to say. Yeah. Um, I think, of course, economic reality always catches up, as I said. So there will be, there will be a real crash sometime, for sure. I don't know when it's going to happen. And I, try and I, I don't speculate it either. Or at least when, when you think about equity markets, for example, I try not to 
think when they're gonna crash because that that's always ends uh, wrong. But I mean, if we take Bitcoin, yes, Bitcoin helps in the situation a little bit because if there's a crash, the states might need more money, for example. And when they print money right now, that's seen a rush going into their pockets immediately. Bitcoin lets you at least avoid that senior rush partly. You still have the capital gains tax if you ever were to sell your Bitcoins so that they get a part of the senior rush anyway. But Bitcoin at least lets individuals move between uh, jurisdictions, for example. If some country becomes too, uh, too harsh in its dealings in how to actually mitigate the future crisis, you can always take your Bitcoin and go, hopefully. Um, yeah, so I, I'm for sure. I, I for sure think that there will be some type of crisis, but I it's very hard for me to see exactly how it will look like. Right. Yeah, you, you mentioned you know the, the the playbook of how this has gone down before, and I you know this I, I won't fear monger too much, but you know one of the concerns is of course I mean the 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 unemployment numbers just came out from the states today and added another six million, <clears throat> so they're up at twenty two million people who filed for unemployment and you know when you have this perfect storm of you know financial crisis high unemployment you know shifting geopolitical powers around the world i mean it's a very convenient way to chop that unemployment number in half is to you know require people for service let's say and uh, that's happened in many times uh, throughout uh, history and uh, you know, I'm, the thing that makes me ho more hopeful than anything is Bitcoin exists now and it did, nothing like it exists in, in the past. And, you know, e even gold, it, gold is totally permission. It's not per permissionless at all. You can be told you can't use it. You can't spend it. If, if anyone finds it in your house or you try to use it, then you go to jail, you get killed. So, you know, nothing has uh, ever yeah. existed. Nothing has ever existed to uh, as a, you know, a real, real viable alternative to to opt out. And I'm, and I'm glad that it now does because it hopefully will change how we collectively as a civilization respond to this kind of stuff. But, you know, it's uh, the authoritarian playbook is well established and I can see things being drawn from it in this uh, instance as well. Yeah, I think a lot of this, uh, we're talking about the money printing right now with the Federal Reserve. I think a lot of this is actually going on because people don't have the proper view of what money is. Mm -hmm. I personally subscribe to the Austrian economic school, school of Economics. It is a very, very simple you know, way to explain how money emerges, how money thrives, and how money dies, or is dethroned, if you will. Um, so I think if it's, it's a lot to ask, but if people understood properly how money emerged in human civilizations, and what money really is, that it's nothing magical. It's nothing that is, uh, in a sense, much more different than a regular good, like livestock or livestock were money before, and or seashells, for example. Then I think it would be a less push towards politicians actually managing money or asking other people to manage money. Uh, if you want, I can give an example, actually, or yeah. for the listeners of my theory or how I view money, because it might be, might be relevant to actually understand what we're talking about when we talk sure. about money. So let, let's take this example, a quick example. Let's say I am a, I'm a potato farmer and you are a, an orange farmer. I have a surplus of potatoes and I want to exchange. I, don't, I cannot eat them. I don't want them. So I want to change this surplus of potatoes for some of your oranges. I go up to you with these uh, potatoes and the thing that will likely happen is that you will decline this barter because while you have something that I want, I might not have something that you want. This is called the lack of coincidence of wants. So in the Austrian theory, which uh, I'm writing about in my book, Money Dethrone, it's just that in order for me to obtain those oranges, I have to go through an intermediary good, a third good. It might turn out that you, for example, want bags of wheat. So I take my surplus of potatoes to the guys selling wheat. I obtain the wheat and I take the wheat to you in order to obtain oranges. But this is how I view money. 
the intermediary good in indirect barter, in this case wheat, that is money, that is the medium of exchange. And it's important here also to understand that <clears throat> in the same society, other people that are conducting the same kind of barter situations, they might pick other intermediary good as money. So in a society, there might be many monies operating at the same time. And we saw this historically in India, for example, they actually had wheat as money uh, and silver at the same time. So this is why I'm one of those who actually emphasize that money is just a medium of exchange. It's very simple. It's just to get past this problem of a lack of coincidence of ones. And I think that if more politicians and central bankers understood this, they would not really perhaps want to mess with it as much because they treat money as if it is some tool that you manage countries with or manage the economy. It's not. It's just to solve for, for the inefficiencies of barter. Um, yes, so in, to, to make this example even more um, realistic, let, let's say that I'm still a potato farmer. Let's say that it's not only you who sell oranges. Let's say that there's many orange farmers and I still want to obtain these oranges. Some of the orange farmers, they, uh, might, they might demand uh, the wheat in payment and some might demand, for example, copper rods. This leaves me with a choice. And here is the key of the Austrian theory of money. I, with my surplus of potatoes, I can choose between either obtaining the wheat to get to the, to the end goal, which is the oranges, or I can choose to obtain the copper in order to get the oranges. <clears throat> And in this situation, I will always pick the road that costs me the least of money in terms of, for example, transaction costs. So in, in this example, it might be that the, the bags of wheat are more liquid. They are more liquid on the spot market. Uh, by the way, just in, interrupt me if, if, uh, if, you, if you have some questions. Sure. Um, so it does not make sense for me then, if the bags of wheat are the most liquid, it does not make sense for me to choose the iron rods in order to, to obtain the, the oranges. Uh, and this is the, Meng, the Karl Menger theory of relative saleableness. Um, so so, so the, the, these are the, the, the dynamics at play. So when, for example, when, when society progresses and people have actually more stuff that they produce and more stuff that they want to save, then it makes sense for me, for example, as still the potato farmer, I have a large surplus. It makes sense for me to not put, not switch all this surplus to the bags of wheat because I will just use a few of them in order to obtain oranges, but I will still have a lot of wheat uh, to take home and I have to use them as money in the future. And what happens when you store wheat over a long period, it starts to decay and it starts to rot. So we see here, like as, as soon as a society creates a lot of surpluses and the more people want to save money, the more important is it that I choose another type of money that has the better fundamental properties or physical properties. So it might, might make more sense for me to acquire the wheat in order to get the oranges quickly but to also exchange parts of my surplus for, for example, the copper rods. And this is uh, what happens when more and more individuals that want to save money at home, what happens when they obtain uh, copper in this, in this way? The price of copper increases because suddenly people demand copper not only for their own consumption or for, for the use of copper in production processes. Suddenly people want to acquire copper in order to exchange it further in, in economic exchange. So they use then copper as money. And what happens when pe more people demand it uh, in this manner? The price increases. And when the price increases, the, the producers all over, all over this area will try to produce more copper because they want to make a profit. Um, so suddenly, you know, suddenly even those who hold, mon hold copper money at home storing for the future. They will see the copper market flooded with added production uh, and their savings might be diluted and uh, the transportability for example of copper might might be hard as well since a lower and lower value to weight ratio might be the reality. So people have to actually take more and more copper on themselves when they go and transact. So now we see that <clears throat> the wheat 
was money, and it became worse and worse money with more and more savings. We see that also copper, um, which became money, become ever worse and worse money. So there's this constant Darwinian forces that takes people to always choose better and better money because they, as individuals, they want to cut the costs of economic exchange. So some smart individuals will then go from picking the wheat as money, they will choose to store their wealth in things that are less dilutable and more easy to transport. For example, silver and gold. So even if silver have a very, very low liquidity on the spot market initially, and it's rather expensive to purchase it, if you're storing that for years, the savings that you make in actually being able to store it without it being dilutable offsets the initial low transaction costs. So you will see this constant shift towards these harder and harder monies. And while people are shifting to these harder and harder monies, the price of it goes up and the liquidity of them also increases as people want to obtain them. Um, so this is, this is the essence of how I view money. You have this kind of Darwinian shift that people, that individuals will always try to pick the least costly money. And this essentially leads to silver and gold. So all roads lead to silver and gold. We, we saw this uh, historically in my book. I, I bring up, for example, uh, yeah, there were hundreds of primitive monies operating as money before the metallic standards came. And those were demonetized one after another. And I have some examples. Um, until the world was operating only on you know, copper, silver, and gold. And I think that if more people understood this Austrian version of money, that it's just a, a way to minimize you know, various costs when you're exchanging your produce with other people, then they wouldn't use it as some kind of magic tool um, to, to organize an economy. Yeah, this was I, I, a long-winded, uh, you know, no, explanation. But I really it's wanted great. to get it in this, uh, in here, because I, I think it's very important that people understand the Austrian version of money. It's very simple, it's very clean, and it's very humble. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think for most people, even for those, you know, the, the many people that we often decry in government, it's mostly ignorance. You know, they don't yeah, understand exactly. these things. They don't have a, a framework for monetary history, they don't understand why and how these, th these processes unfold. But for a small group, I think they do. And I think money is a tool and you and I, and perhaps in the Austrian school and others, probably see it as the, you know, the, the rate limiting mm -hmm. factor uh, or a tool on which, uh, how we assess and how we access our potential through cooperation and trade. And we judge it based on uh, the, the inherent qualities it has and how those qualities will uh, function as we use it as a, in, that, in that nature as that kind of a tool. And so if it doesn't, if it doesn't foster uh, trade and exchange between in, in time and space and, and doesn't foster prosperity, we think, oh, we got to find something better, right? So we're, we're, I think we're idealists, so we're monetary purists. We're always looking for that next evolutionary step in money mm -hmm because we realize how important it is. And if the better we can make the money, you upgrade the money, you upgrade the, the market, the civilization, the culture, what have you. And so we look at those properties and we assess them through that kind of lens or perspective or worldview. But I think some people look and say, I understand the, you know, some of the functions that money needs to, uh, to, to provide, but I have a different intent for the money as well. And so I think some people will judge money not based on what's the best possible money for maximizing and optimizing uh, voluntary exchange and cooperation and the, the prosperity that, that, that stems from that, but what's a suitable money that still allows for a certain degree of control. And I think that's part of the reason why uh, we have the money we have today, because some people realize this, and I think they're they know that you know paper money isn't a good money. They know that there's other better monies out there, but the other monies don't permit the level of control that uh, the paper monies do. And I think I think you know, and this is not in the realm of conspiracy at all. I mean, for certain people, it's a rational economic calculation. If you're 
close to that spigot. If you're at the top of that, uh, if you have that control, then it's an entirely rational economic calculation for you. It may not be the most moral calculation, but if we're just talking economic calculation, it's perfectly rational. So I think we view money uh, through different lenses. So it's not only just comparing attribute to attribute, but what does the money allow us to do? And you know that is a subjective assessment based on uh, all the different things that we have access to. That's true. It's it's uh, for sure subjective, and this uh, dynamic that I was explaining, it's uh, valid on the free market. That's how that's how the evolution of money is working in the free market, and it, it explains perfectly how we went from, as I said, hundreds of different monies all over the world, and you end up with three. And and I would argue that there were no other roads than to than to actually end up with those three, because while people subjectively value which money that they want. Uh, economic reality is not subjective. So if, if I choose to hold uh, money that is easy to produce, if I have the glass beads and I store my family's wealth in glass beads, for example, while the, the European ships come with you know, the house full of glass beads, it doesn't matter that I wish that this money or I, I think that this money is the best for me, the price of this money will go down and you will have the hyperinflation. So the, the state power over money, it is kind of disabled this uh, market, the market forces with regards to money, but they are part of the same sale. They are part of the same saleableness dynamics. So, for example, in the U.S., you have the U.S. dollar. It's it's completely the dominant money. This is because the U.S. dollar has the highest saleableness in in the U.S. How does it have the highest saleableness? It has because of the laws. You have to pay taxes with dollars, and all other monies are having their saleableness artificially decreased with various laws, that you are not allowed to use various monies. So they are part of the same saleableness dynamics. And I think you can, a good way to understand it is looking at Venezuela, for example, the money there. They might decree by law, or they might say on the state TV that Venezuela and Bolivar is a strong currency. But the market, on the market, it might have a lower market cap than, for example, gold or US dollars, even though it's traded in the black market. So these state monopolies of money, they can escape economic reality for a while. But once they start to mass produce, people will anyway opt to get the most saleable money, even though it's illegal or if it's in the gray zone. And Bitcoin, I think, is a good example of this. Bitcoin has an incredible saleableness over time. It can't be diluted. And uh, there's no, almost no cost of you know, assessing the quality of which Bitcoin you have. You have your full node and you can assess it. So the Bitcoin has an extremely high saleableness, I would argue. Um, so the only, I mean, the, the main weapons the state can use against it is, for example, they can, if they ban, if one state bans Bitcoin, well, then the saleableness of Bitcoin decreases a little bit in this jurisdiction. And, but they can also increase the saleableness of their own monies by not mass printing. But this they evidently fail to do. So I'm very optimistic about Bitcoin. And I'm viewing Bitcoin in this framework of, uh, of uh, Austrian economics. And according to this framework, it is absolutely logical to be very positive uh, very optimistic about Bitcoin, I would argue. When I, when I first stumbled upon this uh, Mangarian framework of money, this is uh, when I actually thought it's game over for all the shitcoins out there. Because once you understand the forces of relative saleableness, that it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to own the second least expensive money, then uh, you can argue that all these shitcoins, since they're more centralized, the saleableness across time is lower because the, the, the central parties can actually, um, over time, dilute them long, uh, you know, harder. They, they, they can dilute them. So they don't have a chance. People will pick Bitcoin precisely because it has the highest sale balance. Yeah, exact, exactly like, like people picked silver, copper, and gold in the end, even though they had hundreds of different monies to choose from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, when people begin to have an appreciation for 
what money is and how things emerge as money in a free market, then, you know, all it takes is a little bit of, you know, education around Bitcoin. And it's a pretty obvious, uh, you know, conclusion, uh, which is why, you know, as you say, the, these economic realities, and I agree, will ultimately play out regardless of who proselytizes or educates for them. But my, you know, and I, I do oscillate, but part of my, my motivation for putting out information and talking to people about it is maybe we can mitigate, you know, the, the damage or the downside of uh, that transition, you know, uh, of the people that might may be harmed in, in, in that process because they're not as, uh, you know, aware of how it, how it all works. For sure. I think so too. Of course, if everyone, if everyone was forced to use the state currencies, when they always the situation is always a lot worse than if you have this um I, I think even in in our example that we talked about in france during those implosions their goal that there were some gold even though it was forbidden on pain of death to own gold and silver insert in uh, at home people were obviously doing it and they tried to escape the country with the silver and gold many were caught by the police on the roads and they were executed in the but even just the fact that some could escape with some money, at least, that, of course, helps. It would have been far worse and far more starvation if everyone did not have, have any access to gold or silver. So in this case, Bitcoin, um, it's an escape hatch for some people. It will not help everyone but because there will always be someone holding on to this bad money. In the yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Um, one last thing before we get to the last part, but, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by all the, you know, as we mentioned, instances in history. And I think a lot of people are probably familiar with uh, the Byzantine uh, Empire. And I know you wrote, I think it was your most recent article. Uh, and I just wonder if you could kind of summarize that, uh, you know, that article here, because just for a little like, you know, historical interest uh, juice before we move on. Yeah, sure. You know, the funny thing is when I published this, it's, it's a chapter in my book about the Byzantine Empire. And when I published this uh, as a free article on Medium, I got, you know, all these trolls after me. There's apparently Byzantine nationalists on Twitter that attack you if you say anything bad about the Byzantine Empire. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I come from the, I have no opinion on the Byzantine Empire. I come from the point of that they messed with the money and they paid some type of price for it. Right. Of course, the debasement story of the Byzantine Empire, it's not the only reason that an empire falls, but it's part of the puzzle, and they did, they did not like this. But in any case, yeah, the, <laughs> the Byzantine Empire, it was... Uh, the, the Roman Empire fell, and also, in my opinion, because they debased their money to oblivion. The, the value of the Roman solidus coins fell to, to virtually zero and they had the economic hardships because of this. They cannot help to, they cannot, uh, you know, afford all the, the defenses that they need and the empire is falling. So then you have the, the emperor Constantine, he kind of revived the empire from, from Constantinople in the East, the East Roman Empire in uh, the fourth century after Christ. So he, he issued the Besant, which is 100% pure gold coins with no debasements. And the empire operated from around 400 after Christ to around 1,000 after Christ. So six, 700 years of pure gold money. And the empire stood, it was, uh, of course, some hardships, but uh, it expanded. And as soon as an emperor started to debase the, this uh, money of the empire, then things kind of started to fall apart. Because when you debase the Besant in this case, if you put some silver into the gold coins, but you have the, contra you have the contracts with the legions and the soldiers stipulated that they are going to get paid X number of coins per month. And when they get the, the, the base coins, they will feel cheated. They are on the front lines. There's not many silversmiths on the front lines that, that can assess the quality of the coins. So they kind of just accept it and they don't see this gradual change of the debasement. So when they actually are sent home after the campaigns and they're going to save, they're going to spend their money, um, they realize that they have been cheated by the state. So of course, this has repercussions with the defense uh, capabilities. Some 
I find it likely that some companies uh, of mercenaries likely just changed. Uh, they went to a more honest ruler, for example. Why stay with someone that debases your money? Um, so this was a gradual process. The, the gold besants, they lost their gold content uh, over the decades there. And in the end, um, the, the Turks conquered, they, they conquered uh, the Byzantine Empire. And I think that if you mess with the money, you're going to have troubles. It's, I show this in uh, 10 examples in my book, in various empires and various time frame, frames all over the world. When you start to mess with your money too much, there will be economic hardship in, in the end. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think we're seeing that today. And uh, for many people, it's you know insidious and they don't notice it. but I think when you start uh, assessing that and realizing that, you actually begin to see how even small manipulations of the money impact behavior of, of individuals in a, in a given market. And for a lot of people, that's not counterintuitive, but it's not obvious. You think, well, you know, why would the, the money change my behavior? I'm a free-thinking person. I make my own calculation regardless of any outside force. But you know, maybe most people would concede like, well, maybe I am influenced by things, the media and culture and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, the money one of those things that when the nature of it changes, it changes you and it changes your behavior. And, um, you know, that example you gave of the soldiers is just one very obvious, blatant example of that. But I think there are many more that uh, aren't so obvious. And uh, part of the reason why systems and abuses like that are able to persist. Yeah. I agree. So last part here, it's the, the rapid fire part. So you can answer however long as short as you want. Um, the first part is a bunch of questions, bit, bit of longer answer. And the last part is just word association. So if you want to pass on any of them, that's fine too. Okay. The, fir the first one we touched on already, but I'll, I'll ask it again from maybe a more concise answer. What is money? Money is a medium of exchange. It's the intermediary good of indirect order. It's nothing mystical. If you had to explain Bitcoin to a 10-year-old, what would you say? Uh, Bitcoin is money that the parents cannot take from you. <laughs> I had that answer recently. Um, how will you know if Bitcoin has failed? It will be reflected in the market capitalization. What so does Bitcoin... a, a very, very, very low price. What does Bitcoin succeeding look like to you? Bitcoin succeeding would be uh, more, more than 10% of the market value of gold, according to me, is, is a big success. So that would be uh, $50,000 Bitcoin. Uh, what's your you know, go-to resource for learning more about Bitcoin? Twitter has a good... Follow the right people on Twitter and you will have a, a lot of material that you might even not have the time to read all of it. Definitely. Um, what other investments are you interested in? You don't have to disclose any holdings, but what other investments are you interested in? I think over the long run, equities, because you, Bitcoin is money. Money is not productive. It doesn't, uh, you don't get more money by holding money. So of course, you, you may speculate on Bitcoin right now, that in the monetization process, according to Austrian theory, that it's going to rise. This is what I think as well. But over the long run, equity is, uh, is a sound choice. What's one piece of advice you'd give to someone just entering the space? To not, not trust people and to not be overhyped. Always try to cool down your feelings and emotions. Don't get sucked into some, some shitcoin scam. What movie or song is most related to Bitcoin, in your opinion? Uh, I think someone said Matrix already, but I would say The Truman Show. Yeah, a lot of people say Matrix. Uh, can Bitcoin be stopped? If so, what is Bitcoin's biggest vulnerability? If not, why not? Bitcoin, it's not likely, but it can theoretically be stopped. The biggest threats are... Uh, a full-on ban together with the states actually sorting out their own currencies. Uh, and, I, and I don't believe that the latter will happen. 
Um, what is something about Bitcoin you don't understand very well or you'd like to spend more time studying? I would like to spend more time studying the game theory, the game theory surrounding mining, the, the long-term effects of this uh, SHA-256 proof of work that we have on Bitcoin. What implications are there? Because I think it's a very complicated subject and it would be good to understand it more. When, if ever, do you think the first central bank will start adding Bitcoin to the reserves and or will central banks even exist in 20 years? Uh, I don't think they will add to reserves and I, I think that they will exist, sadly. <laughs> uh, what have you learned about yourself or how have you changed, if at all, as a result of learning about and interacting with Bitcoin? I think I've become more cynical with politics. Actually, I was more optimistic before, and after falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you realize that uh, the best custodian of your money is you, not government. 100%. Uh, what is your most controversial or contrarian view or opinion, if none on Bitcoin, any subject is fair game? I will give a Bitcoin, so, so let's hope to spark some controversy. I think a multiple, multiple implementations are better than having a single implementation variant of Bitcoin. So this is a trade-off between decentralization and technical risk. If you have a majority of the network running one implementation, for example, Bitcoin Core, which I run, this is good in terms of uh, security. There, there may not be the chain split, accidental chain splits because of bugs. But from a decentralization point of view, I would prefer if there were a wider range of uh, good clients that people could run. And most people don't agree with this view, I, I might add. Ballpark estimate of Bitcoin's price in five years? Between 30,000 and 50,000. Um, what is one question you'd like to see added to this list? Um, or are you sure about the, are you having control over your private, private keys? How is your private key situation? Mm -hmm. Good question. And I skipped over one. What if we're wrong? What if, you know, Bitcoin doesn't turn out to be what we think it's going to be? Or what if it fails? What, how will that affect you? Um, I would, I would uh, not be happy. That, that would be very, very dis, disheartening because this is our shot that actually sends money in state. And it's just incredibly amazing that it just happens so that the first money that we, that we, the first money that, the first cryptocurrency that was created was Bitcoin and it turned out to be the most decentralized one. Imagine if the first one would have, you know, the, uh, the developer funding and this, uh, you know, groups that obtain it could have been so much worse, like any of the shit coins, but it just happened to be that it started in such an amazing way that Bitcoin has been able to keep the number one spot. Yeah, I know this is definitely the not, not the correct way to think about anything really, because um, you, you want to be objective uh, <clears throat> as much as possible, but just there's so many elements of Bitcoin, how it started and how it propagated and everything that like, I feel like you couldn't write it better in a storybook like it just it feels it, it it feels so right the way that it all just came together and that you know maybe unfortunately but that makes me even more kind of uh, convicted in it yeah we are very lucky about this situation yeah, definitely all right last part uh, word association so i just say the word you tell me the first thing that pops into your mind democracy dangerous the lightning network Increasing saleableness. Government. Uh, clumsy. Human rights. Well intended. Violence. Natural. Trump. Sorry? Trump. <laughs> Entertainment. Ego. I. FOMO. Mistake. Wealth. Freedom. Privacy. Difficult. Hate speech. Free speech.
gold. Underrated. Guns. Legal. Revolution. Dangerous. Socialism. Misguided. Family. Good. Inequality. Natural. Hell. Shit coins. <laughs> <laughs> liberty. Statue of Liberty. Energy. Mining. Bitcoin. What I do. Beautiful. Uh, Emil, thanks for, uh, for taking the time uh, to come and chat with me today. Really enjoyed it. Is there uh, anywhere you want to direct people if they want to either consult your work or get in touch or follow you? Yeah, sure. Uh, first off, thank you for inviting me. It has been an honor. And uh, people can follow me on Twitter. I'm Besant Denier, or just search for Emil Sandstedt. If you're really interested in uh, the background of the Austrian theory of money and uh, the kind of examples that we have spoken about, you can uh, buy my book on Amazon. There it is, Money nice. Dethroned, A Historical Journey. Uh, for, for the monetary nerds listening. So again, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure, man. I think uh, with each passing day, there's more and more monetary nerds. So uh, uh, I'm sure there'll be a, a robust audience for your book. So congratulations on writing it. And uh, thanks for coming on for a chat. Okay. Thank you very much. See you, brother. Take care. Take care.